Welcome to Coach House Talks. Father, as we look into your word, as we look at what you want to say to us, Father, we pray that you'll stir our hearts, that we will hear from you. Lord, that it's not my words, but it's your words. And Father, we pray that we will be uh, good as we look at your word, that we will look at your word in the right way. And Father, we pray it will be something that is meaningful to us, that will lift us, that will encourage us, will challenge us even as we go throughout this day and the week and the time to come. Father, help us to read your word responsibly and to hear from you, we ask, by your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we're going to look at Ecclesiastes. So if you don't know where that is, it's kind of... Well, halfway through your Bible in the Old Testament Psalms, and then just after that, you'll find Proverbs, and then you'll find Ecclesiastes. So go and, go and pop over to that if you get it. If you've got a chance in the next few weeks, have a read of it, and maybe read it with a slightly different slant. So I'm going to try and give you some ideas on how to read Ecclesiastes. But I want to start with this. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, so the whole two chapters in Matthew, where Jesus is talking to his disciples on the top of a mount. He's done that to get away from the crowd, but the crowds have all followed, so they get the benefit of hearing what Jesus is saying to his disciples. And there's two complete chapters of Matthew given over to this fantastic sermon that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And he ends with this. So right at the end of all of this discourse that Jesus is giving to his disciples, it ends with these words. In verse 24 of chapter 7. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Now you'll all know this. It's well known to you. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand, when the rain and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of the religious law. So why, if we're looking at Ecclesiastes, have I started here with Jesus talking to his disciples? Why have I started here? Well, I think Jesus summarizes Ecclesiastes quite well in these verses. Much of what we will see in Ecclesiastes in this simple, observable explanation of life is here in this little parable. And I believe it will help us on how to approach or get a handle on how to approach the book of Ecclesiastes and how to value what it's saying to us. Now let us see something. In this illustration from Matthew... This illustration that Jesus finishes this magnificent sermon on, one that takes the elements of living by the law, given to God's people as a benchmark for righteous living. That's what he's talking about, the law. This is what it's about, and I've come to fulfill it. Passed down throughout Israel since God gave it to Moses. Jesus reveals to his listeners that the circumstances of life represented by the rain, the flood, and the winds, when storms arise, they batter against both buildings. They smash against the house on the sand and the one on the rock. The only difference between the two is the ground on which they stand. 
Now, I've found myself in the last few weeks repeatedly stating to people, especially in my capacity as pastor, that life throws up all kinds of difficulties and circumstances for all of us. But I can't imagine having to negotiate the pain, the suffering, and the despair that we all taste without God. Now, I've done a few funerals in the last couple of weeks, and some of the things that have been said is, how do you go through this stuff and believe in God? Well, my answer to that is, I don't know how you go through stuff and don't believe in God. The entire instruction of this sermon on the mount rests upon this stark reality. Listen to my teachings, says Jesus, and if you follow them, you will be shown to be wise. So before we delve into Ecclesiastes over the next few weeks, let us hold before us this. Wisdom is following God's rules. Foolishness is abandoning them. And this is a common thread throughout Scripture. The people of Israel will be blessed if the kings were righteous, but cursed if the chosen kings abandoned God. Now this is seen in the Bible as man taking the decision to trust in his own ability and in his own wisdom. Right back in the Garden of Eden, we have Adam and Eve abandoning God's rule over them by disobedience. Fast forward to Samuel, and we have the people wanting kings to rule over them, abandoning God's rule. And we see this clearly when God tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, verses 7 to 9, he goes with the grumblings of the people. He says, what am I to do with these people? They want a king. They're rejecting me. And the Lord replies, they're rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them out of Egypt, they've continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they're giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. Now we continually, even though we've had all of this scripture given to us, we continually choose our own wisdom. And it can never lead anywhere it's a shadow of the true relationship that we've abandoned. As Jesus said, following God's teaching and acting on them is truly wise. But once again, we have the stark choice of rejecting Jesus, which is foolishness, or accepting Jesus as payment for all of our wrongdoings, which is wisdom. Now, all of this you will see I hopefully you will see, is helpful for us as we begin to view the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want to show that it isn't a depressing, helpless list of failings and worthless actions, but a book that has as its very theme that all things are good in life, but not everything is beneficial for our eternity. Now, where have we heard that before? Well, if you know the Bible, you'll know that Paul says in his writings to the Christians in Corinth, including this from 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1, even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. So he's telling us, yeah, you can do lots and lots of stuff, but be careful where your priorities lie. Be careful how much you elevate things. So I would say this. We need to ask ourselves where our hearts are pointing rather than where our eyes are looking. 
Okay? Where are our hearts pointing rather than where are our eyes looking? Because too often we judge ourselves based on what we're seeing and what we're doing as opposed to what actually the heart is feeling and wanting to do. And here is the key and the tension to understanding Ecclesiastes. The writer or preacher sets out from a point of knowing that God fulfills and gives meaning, but is setting out to see if, in his own wisdom, he can create the same conclusion. The entire book is based on human wisdom. Okay, and we need to understand this. But when we read Ecclesiastes and we read it and we think, oh, we'll pick this bit out because we can make a stand on this or we can make a theological point on this, we need to understand that the entire book is written from a point of view of human wisdom. So don't be surprised if some of the comments from the book make us shake our head or seem to contradict even the truth of Scripture as we know it. It contains truths, half-truths, and even statements that are not true, okay? Because it's one man's arguments from human wisdom. So armed with this, let's get in there. Now the first problem that we have is identifying the author. Who wrote it? Strange, why did you say that? Okay, it's generally held that Solomon wrote it, but this actually fell out of favor amongst most scholars, Christian scholars. Um, who questioned the grammatical style. They looked at it and said, this isn't Solomon's writing compared to everything else. This is a much later writing. But recent scholars, scholars have swung back to this initial, initial thinking that it was indeed Solomon who wrote it. Now, I tend to hold to this, and I also tend to hold to the fact that he wrote most of Proverbs and the Song of Songs as well. And they form part of the wisdom books of Scripture as we know it in our Bibles. Now, the introduction in chapter 1, although Solomon's not named, does declare certain facts. Verse 1 tells us that the writer is a teacher or preacher who is King David's son. So there's point 1. Verse 12 declares that this teacher was king of Israel living in Jerusalem. Well, Solomon was the last king to have Jerusalem as his base. In fact, he's one of the only kings that lived in Jerusalem. Verse 16 tells us of the greatness of this king's wisdom. And in chapter 2, between verses 4 to 9, he tells us of his amassed wealth and his amassed concubines. All of which immediately suggests Solomon to us. Okay, so there's enough clues in there for us to piece that together and go, yeah, okay, he might not name the name, but actually the, the facts suggest to us that Solomon was the writer of this. Now, 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 41 to 43, when you look at Kings, it will tell you the life events of what happened in Solomon's reign. And at the end of it, it has a summary of Solomon's reign. So 1 Kings 11 tells us this from verse 41. The rest of the events in Solomon's reign, including all of his deeds and all of his wisdom, are recorded in the book of the Acts of Solomon. Solomon ruled in Jerusalem over Israel for 40 years, and when he died, he was buried in the city of David, named for his father. And then his son, Rehoboam, became the next king. So I'm very happy, given the evidence that I can find, to assign the book of Solomon to Solomon's authorship. Okay? To Ecclesiastes, I believe Solomon wrote it. However, like Song of Songs, the writings don't shine a particularly good light 
on his life. So we think of Solomon as being this great wise king, but actually Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes don't actually point a very good light on him if he's the author. So we should remember that Solomon, although wise in discerning the heart of good and evil, that's what he asked for, can I have the wisdom to know what is the right thing to do in God's sight, good and evil? That's what he asked for his wisdom in. So we should remember, although he was wise in discerning that, that whilst much is written about his wealth and the glories of the constructed temple in Jerusalem, the postscript to his life is one of failure and abandonment of God. Chapter 10 of 1 Kings is a depressing account of how due to his many wives and concubines, Solomon abandons God for the worship of other gods. Okay, he gets watered down, if you like. He understands God. He's gone through all of this magnificent story of God providing lots of stuff. And then it's ended with this postscript. But Solomon had many wives and concubines. God doesn't judge him on it, just makes the comment. But... But Solomon, after all these things he did, but Solomon had many wives and concubines. All of which, God said, would draw you away from worshipping me and would draw you to worshipping their gods, which is exactly what happens. So God's response to this was expected, but somehow it's still filled with grace. 1 Kings 11, 11 to 12 says, Since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. But for the sake of your father David, I will not do this while you're still alive. I will take the kingdom away from your son. Now my belief is that Solomon did write Ecclesiastes and also Song of Songs. But they are written from a perspective of looking back in realisation of what's been lost. His failings. What is abandoned? And how man's wisdom cannot ever compare to God's ideals for our lives. See, the writer sets out to use his own wisdom to discover, explore, and test everything that he says is under the sun. And this has become a well-known saying for us, hasn't it? There's nothing new under the sun, we often hear said. And it comes from Ecclesiastes where the expression is used a number of times to represent this. Under the sun are the things on earth only. Okay? Under the sun, things on earth. Rather than having a spiritual perspective. Under the sun refers to earthly systems and wisdom without reference to God. This is essential to understand so that the book can be interpreted Correctly, we had a quick chat about this on Wednesday at the at the home group, and I think it was, I think I think it was um, yourself. I'm looking at you. I think it was you that said it's about earthly wisdom. It's about things under the sun. It's about things on earth. And you're quite correct. It's about things on earth. Now we're reminded that the world continues as it always has, and attempts to change it are futile. We can't change what's happening around us. I'm sure this will generate a few ums and ahs. The truth is, earth continues as it always has done. Day after day, until its end. We're reminded of this in chapter 1 as a framework in which to base the rest of the book. So Ecclesiastes 1, the first, well, first 4 to 8 says this, The earth never changes. 
the sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries round to rise again. The wind blows south and then it turns north, around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. So what's been drawn out here is that there is a consistency and a rhythm to the earth and therefore everything under the sun. Ecclesiastes leads us to conclude that trying to change anything in this constant cycle is tantamount to trying to plait fog. It's useless. It's folly. It's without substance. Now, substance is another theme of Ecclesiastes. As time and time again, the writer describes things as having no substance. Now, depending on the various translations, this can be described as meaningless, without substance, like a vapor or a mist. It's like chasing the wind. Now, this is because we're dealing with a Hebrew word called hebel, which does not have a direct single English word to translate its meaning. Hence, we have various forms of it in Ecclesiastes. But it's always this root word, hebel. And hebel basically means smoke or shadow. You can't see it. You can't reach out and take hold of it. Oh, sorry, you can see it, but you can't reach out and take hold of it. It's without substance like a vapor. Hebel is something that mankind cannot change or control. So meaningless is not a kind of negative word at all. It just says it's something that's temporal, something which is a mist, something which is a vapor, something that is outside of our control. Now, this is much more helpful for us to understand the text better. Life is not meaningless, as in a despairing, negative tone. But it is temporal and should not be the focus of our hearts. We set our eyes and hearts on the eternal, not the things under the sun, whatever they may be. See, man's wisdom leads to man and folly, whereas true wisdom finds its focus and contentedness in God. The purportedly wisest man in all, this teacher, our writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, sets out to prove that man's wisdom without reliance upon God is utterly without substance and does not bring about peace, contentedness, or happiness. It is eventually meaningless as it does not lead to eternity. It's a vapor, and therefore, without God, it is meaningless. Now, interestingly, when Adam and Eve named their children Cain and Abel, Guess what Abel translates as? No guesses? It translates as vapor. So Adam and Eve named their son vapor. We've come out of God's presence, and now everything, even our children, seem meaningless. As if to illustrate that without that relationship that they enjoyed with God in the garden, life itself has now become limited and without substance. Now, how would Solomon think, coming from all of his great wisdom and throwing it all away? 
he would, he would do the same thing. It's now meaningless. It's now a vapor. It's now without substance. So Solomon urges us, if we cannot change life's inevitable cycles, then enjoy it and be content with your lot. See, anyone that's done any gardening, so look at the hands up here in the gardening team. Come on, I know there's people in here in the gardening team. If you're on the gardening team, you'll know that how, it doesn't matter how much we weed, weeds come back. Is that true? We pull them out to make the place look good, and then we come back a few months later, and there are the weeds again. So we pull them out to make them look good, and then we come back, and there they are again. An endless cycle. Why do you do it? Why do you go pulling weeds up when you know they're just going to come back? It's meaningless, that, isn't it? trying to keep on top of it. We are in a constant cycle, and life is a constant cycle, to try and maintain clear ground. When we sell our house, the new owner will have no idea of how many hours of toil have been put in to maintain this status quo. It's the weariness and inevitability, it's this weariness and inevitability that Ecclesiastes points to in our earthly existence. We don't stop doing things because they are in the end perhaps a waste of time, but we see them in the context of the bigger picture. I want my garden to look good for other people and for myself. And throughout this book we are given illustrations that point to a very obvious conclusion. God is in control of everything. And when we realize this, we should fear him as he holds all things together. After all, Proverbs reminds us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this is preserved for us also by Solomon. So let's look at the context he provides there. Proverbs 9, 9 to 15 says this, Instruct the wise and they will be even wiser, but teach the righteous and they will learn even more. So the context here is not just about being wise, but being righteous, making wise, righteous decisions. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. See, what he, see the connections he's making? Wisdom and knowledge, good knowledge, you cannot divorce them from God. And when we do, it's folly. It's meaningless, okay? Wisdom will multiply your days and add years to your life. You become wise and you will be the one to benefit. But if you scorn wisdom, you will be the one to suffer, okay? So if we accept that God is God and all that he's done for us, at the end of our days, we are going to benefit. But if we reject everything that God is doing, everything we see around us that speaks of God and the provision of his salvation through Jesus, then we're going to suffer. The righteous have their hearts set on God. Fearing God generates true wisdom. And putting aside God results in unnecessary suffering. So let's go back to Ecclesiastes. I'm jump to chapter 3. So I'm just going to pick little bits out of this. So it says this in verses 11 to 15. God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. 
I'm just going to ask you a question. Before we knew Jesus, and before we came and had our relationship with God formed and set in our acceptance of Jesus, before that time, eternity is set in your heart. But could you see it? Could you sense it? There might be times when you just go, you know, there's more to life than this. I remember as a kid questioning various things and saying, you know, actually, it takes more. It's less of a leap of faith for me to accept that there's a God who created things than there is for other things that I'm being taught. So there's eternity placed in our heart, but actually we're quite veiled in our thinking, aren't we? Which is what that passage from Corinthians said when we started off the service today. We've got eternity planted in the human heart, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. So I, Solomon, concluded that there is nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labors, for these are gifts from God. And I know that whatever God does is final. Nothing can be added to it or taken away from it. God's purpose is that people should fear him. What is happening now has happened before and will happen in the future has happened before because God makes the same things happen over and over again. One of the strange things about scripture is you read it and you see the same things going round in circles. They keep going because God is always reminding us of where we need to be and our understanding that only he makes sense of our lives. So God's in control. We can't change it. So submit to his authority, follow his commands, as this is the only way to overcome this meaningless or hevel of life. The joy and the wonderful truth is this, that God provides everything we need to make sense of the life we've been privileged to experience. So we have life and we experience everything in it, and it's all good. But it's not all beneficial, okay? That's why Paul's saying what he says. It's all good, but perhaps not beneficial to do some of the stuff we do. Actually, wisdom is focusing our hearts and our minds on the righteous acts that God wants us to do. More than that, we can't do that ourselves. And so the secret that even Solomon looked forward to but wasn't experiencing at that time was that God was actually going to provide an answer to everything for us. And that answer comes as Jesus. Jesus who lives a life that we can't live. He lives this perfect life and brings meaning to life. Without Jesus, everything else is meaningless. It's a vapor. It's a mist. Only God through the provision of Jesus in our lives, gives us the ability to see the big picture, to realize that actually we do go through stuff. And I think that parable that we started with, that end of that sermon on the map, why did Jesus choose to end with that? Well, it's to point us to this. Life is full of lemons for everybody, good and bad. We're all going to go through stuff we don't want to go through. But the only thing that makes consistency and life worth living and eternity worth grabbing hold of is an eternity with God through Jesus. That's it. End of. There is no ifs, buts, or other ways. 
The only way is through Jesus. The only way that life is meaningful is through Jesus. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at www.coachhousechurch.org.